0: Hello, and welcome to The Theology Podcast. Great to have you here for a show. Anyway, if you have tuned in for the first time, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor, and I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written some books. I've done some other things. My most recent book is In the House of Tom Bombadil. Enough about me. How about you, Tom? I'm Tom Price. I'm a teacher. I
1: teach uh, theology, ethics, and philosophy at one of the places is Gordon
2: Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I am a Ministry Associate at Reflections Ministries, Professor Emeritus of History at Central Connecticut State University and among the walking wounded. Yeah, tell us about your wound. You you just had an operation on your arm. Yeah, we um we've just bought a new house, and um I needed to move a with help, with a lot of help, I needed to move a piano out of a sunken living room. And in the process of doing my part of this, I all but detached my bicep tendon. Man, oh um, man.
0: So this so is one of those things. W-
2: tendon, they repaired it
0: two days yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. So you're a little bit groggy, but you're with us.
2: Uh, I think so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is one of those things, you know, when when you're young, you never think about any of this stuff. You know, you take you take your physical abilities for granted, and then as we, we grow older, we discover that well, they're not granted anymore; they've been taken. Well, you back. still
2: take <laughs> them for granted, but then you start <laughs> discovering that you probably shouldn't. Right, that's right. They,
0: they've been they've been returned. <laughs> well, today is my day for the subject of the day, and I want to talk about uh, totalitarianism. So. Some folks out in the listening audience know that I've got several books in the works, and to just make my life that much more complicated, I've committed to writing a fourth book. So I've got four books in the works. (laughs) Um, Excuse me, Chris, if I may interrupt. I know what you're going to ask. I, I knew that was the question you were going to ask, and the answer is yes, it is. Oh, okay, so good.
2: <laughs> yeah, you hear that? That's, yeah. Um, be, because I've been getting questions on that all the time, and I, you know every time you announce a new book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want you to know that I
0: did my part. I sent in the manuscript, and it was sent back to me with yet another set of revisions that they want me to make. So I thought I was done. But I'm not done. I've got some more work to do on the, that book, and they're good. They're good suggestions. Uh, and this is one of the things that maybe people out there in the sort of listening audience aren't aware of when you're a, when you're writing for for a commercial publisher who actually expects to make money from what you write. They really have a right to say that they want things done a different way or their own way or whatever, and then you have to kind of work with them, you know, and sort of. Sometimes come to an agreement about, you know, I'll give you this if you give me that, that kind of thing. But anyway, that's where that stands. So that's one of the books. The other uh, books are I'm working on a uh, children's picture book, and I hope to have that done in the next year, um, primarily because I'd love to have it uh, ready for my granddaughters in about a year or two so that when it comes time for them to actually, you know, uh, look at books on their own, they've got that book as one of the choices. So that there's that. Then I'm working on a commentary on the Book of Acts, and that's a fairly major endeavor that's gonna take uh, you know, some, some time, probably two to three years to, to, to finish. So in the meantime, I thought about something. Uh, I, I proposed something uh, to the folks at Canon Press. Uh, I suggested a particular way of going about it. They got really excited about it, and they sent me a contract on a spur of the moment and a number of other incentives to get me working on it, and they want it done by February 1st. So I'm kind of under the gun to get this (laughs) book done. But the title of the book is How to Defeat Communism in Your Spare Time, which is one of those titles that grabs you, and that's the idea. And I'm using the word or the term uh, communism in the title as a proxy for totalitarianism. Um, I think the term communism communism stirs the blood more than totalitarianism does but I'm going to address the larger question of totalitarianism in the book and what got me thinking along these lines is the book that I read recently the psychology of totalitarianism by uh, Matthias Desmond which is a really good book and I and I heartily recommend it and at the moment I'm um, uh, revisiting uh, Eric Hoffer's the true believer I don't know if you're with that uh, book, guys, but Eric Hoffer was a fascinating character, uh, and The True Believer addresses some of the same themes that uh, Desmet uh, addresses. And then, of course, the classic in the genre is Hannah Arendt's uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism. I've noticed here that publishers like red and black when they talk about totalitarianism. But anyway, so maybe it's supposed to bring something to mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what I want to do is is talk about something that the various authors I have consulted on the subject all agree on is, and, and that is that totalitarianism is a modern phenomenon, and it in rel- its uh, the conditions for the de- sort of the emergence of totalitarianism are. Uh, fairly common in each case. In other words, there are, there are things that have to be uh, p- sort of going on uh, socially and, and intellectually for totalitarianism to emerge. So it's a, a good thing, I think, to, to kind of get you know this conversation rolling uh, to, by uh, uh, contrasting uh, totalitarianism with maybe things that people confuse it with. And one of the things that people confuse totalitarianism with is authoritarianism. So an authoritarian leader, uh, a tyrannical leader, uh, is something we've had for, you know, examples of for time out of mind. I mean, this you know, we can look in the Bible and, and identify, uh, you know, that type of person, like in Herod the Great or so forth. Um, and, you know, you're like, well, what's new to that? Well, totalitarianism is not that. Totalitarianism... Uh, is more total in its ambit and reach. Now, the thing that you see with uh, authoritarian leaders, uh, tyr- 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 tyrannical leaders, is so long as you mind your own business and leave the, the, the driving uh, to the authoritarian leader, uh, he's more than happy to leave you alone. Uh, totalitarian regimes are not uh, you know, cut from that cloth. Uh, totalitarians uh, totalitarian regimes mess with your personal life. They mess with the inner space in your head. They mess with your family uh, sort of dynamics. They, they're they engaged in every element of the social fabric uh, or every thread of the social fabric in a society. That's why they're totalitarian. They have the total uh, you know sort of picture in mind, and they seek to exercise control over every feature of Of social life and intellectual life and so forth. So, anyway, uh, that's an important contrast to make. Do you guys have any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, um, I am not entirely sure I would go quite as far as saying that they're different things. I think the key difference is that in the past, authoritarians didn't have the tools to be totalitarians. I think they wanted that, I think that's what they were trying to do but they didn't have the requisite technologies and things like that to actually make it stick. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Glenn. I think the impulse is the same in both cases. Yeah,
0: I think that there's, there's a lot, of, lot to what you just said, and, and that's getting to what these writers on totalitarianism uh, are also saying, is that the conditions, the social conditions, uh, have to be right. Uh, and until the modern era, they've just not been right for this kind of thing to, to, to emerge. Any thoughts, Tom?
1: Yeah, th- I think this is a really important place at which the the concerns of figures like Elul and others, when they talk about the way in which the advances of science and technology play can play into this dark dimension, and uh, and get when it is coupled with these kinds of dispositions, um, can I mean lead to some of the most uh, life-denying, um, life-threatening, um, and, and human-person-threatening um, uh, movements, I think, uh,
0: ever known. Right. Yeah. Particularly, elul's work on technology and technique. Uh, yeah. what, what was the book that he wrote uh, published on that subject? Was it the Technological Imperative or something? The, I can't remember the that title. One that-
1: technological age. I'm trying to think of yeah. one on technocracy. Yeah, they, yeah. yeah. they all kind of run
0: together in my head, but I, I right. can check why you're... Yeah, yeah, please do. Well, what I want to get into is um, a set of things, uh, three sort of large categories that, that I think um, uh, address or reflect uh, the concerns of these uh, critics of totalitarianism or People who were at least trying to understand it, uh, people as I mentioned, like Eric Hoffer and Hannah Arendt, and so forth. Did you find that? Uh, by the way, yeah, Tim? he
1: has. Uh, the, one of them, of course, is the technological society. That's it. That's and it. And then there, there, there were a few variations. The technological system. He he had a few, and the one on propaganda, I think, yeah. was
0: uh, was significant. Yeah, yeah, they all play into uh, into that. Well, what? Uh, I want to do is just take a look at each of these categories, and then we can spend some time reflecting on just um, how and why developments in each of these uh, areas pr- provides a s- sort of fertile uh, ground for the the uh, emergence of totalitarianism. So the first is a loss of a conviction uh, or a loss of commitment to the notion that There is such a thing as human nature. So, you know, historically, uh, there has been uh, a sense that uh, people in the West have uh, had that, that human beings share a common nature, no matter what, you know, time period they find themselves in. You know, if you're, you know, living during the Renaissance or you're living in the Assyrian Empire, a human being is a human being. And uh, they, sh- you know, each, you know, no matter what sort of social environment you find yourself in, there are certain things that still are the case uh, when it comes to being a human being. And it's this kind of stable core that provides a basis for um, actually the exercise of common sense. In other words, there's a sense that human beings uh, have that they share in common <laughs> about. How to sort of uh, understand the world, uh, you know, discern you know the difference between right and wrong, and so forth. Now, there obviously are differences uh, that you find in different cultures, um, but those differences uh, don't alter the sort of the fundamental core reality that we refer to as human nature. So, there is something essential. To human beings, that is ahistorical. It's uh, by virtue of their natures, or our nature, that that these things are true of us because we are human beings. Um, that has been called into question uh, by many thinkers. We've talked about historicism. We've talked about you know developments you know uh, in the history of Western philosophy. You know with people who have stressed becoming over being. Uh, the Hegelians and so forth, but what that does is that me makes uh, it you know sort of the uh, sort of introduces the prospect that human beings can be fundamentally altered, uh, and the question then is is well who's going to do the altering and what should we should they be sort of uh, engineered uh, into becoming next if you know something maybe is. Uh, less than sort of desirable in the current state of affairs. Go ahead, Tom.
1: Yeah. And there tends to be coupled with that, um, a world in which there is a loss of any kind of transcendent good towards which our natures are moving. So what happens is there becomes a substitute for that. Um, The higher good of our, you know, future evolution, um, a higher sense of justice so that everyone in this meaningless universe can at least have some space to enact their, you know what what creatureliness they have, any of these things. So So that replaced Telos or goal um, becomes the ground and justification for the alteration. Um, and that that's another aspect. So you lose you lose kind of, I mean, final causality or that there is some sort of ultimate purpose, and series of purposes to the human being. Um, and then the loss of any inherent nature aimed towards those. So now it has to be almost forced or, or, or directed through manipulation rather than, you know, love.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. Yeah. So, so the combination of the plasticity of human beings that, you know, in the sense that we can be uh, altered at a very sort of basic level, uh, combined with, uh, some kind of abstract notion uh, of what would be just or right or good. Um, this gets us into the subject of idolatry, uh, I, I, not idolatry, but ideologies. Uh, but I can see you want to well, say something there, Glenn.
2: No, idolatry works too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because, because what happens inevitably is we've got a Nietzschean will to power here in a sense. Uh, whether it's Hitler uh, promoting the Aryan race as the supreme good, or the communist promoting the revolution of the proletariat and the creation of the final utopian state. Actually, in both cases, it's utopian. But you you, you are creating arbitrarily in a very real way a sumum bonum yeah. and the you know, highest good. And thus everything in the state needs to be geared. Toward that end, which means that these infinitely malleable people you have have to be turned into the new socialist men, right? Yeah, um, or the you know, or the uh, um, the the SS, the, the Aryan soldier, you know, or, or something. Um, so the the two of them are connected, but I think you have to note well, as you said, the role of ideology or even idolatry. Uh, in creating the cause, because without the cause, without something higher than the good of the supreme leader, um, you're never going to get the 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 general public. Yeah, the general buy-in that you need to have.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So this, what what we have then is um, this matter of a, sort of a crisis of meaning, uh, because there is no. Uh, intrinsic nature to human beings, but also uh, a crisis of knowledge. So in the classical uh, outlook, because human beings possess human nature, or that's constitutive of their being uh, as human beings, is this nature that they possess, there is some basis that we all have that we can refer to to speak to each other, to work Uh, our disagreements out, uh, to collaborate with each other uh, as we pursue our common interests and so forth, and uh, a kind of sense that we possess in common that would allow us to judge whether or not something is worth living for or submitting to in terms of a proposed law or what have you. Because all of that has been vacated or or sort sort of taken off the the table, that means that um, that others who do possess this vision, this ideological vision, and maybe knowledge uh, concerning how to implement it, uh, can act upon us, um, uh, and we don't have any real basis to resist. Um, the only reason why anyone would resist and say... Um, this way of looking at things is because a person has a false consciousness, uh, maybe is, is sort of, uh, sort of living out an, an earlier ideological sort of, uh, sort of vision. Cause in this, but basically in this way of thinking, if this is the case, if human beings are, uh, malleable to the degree that, you know, this particular outlook set is claims, then, you know, everything is, uh, an ide- kind of an ideological uh sort of product there is no you know even even the notion that there is a human nature is a, a kind of an, a product of of an ideology uh, in this way of thinking and consequently um you're just uh you know sort of living by an older uh you know less adequate uh w- you know sort of uh, system of 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 thought and not uh, really actually exercising, you know, your, your faculties as a human being, as they are an expression of your nature. It, it, you know, I, I, I've kind of am a uh, rambled on there a bit, but I think <laughs> you guys get the gist of what I'm saying. So this, this also means that there's just kind of a forthright embrace of power uh, in the servants of ideology and, um, and anybody who resists the current sort of developments with regard to this ideological vision that's being pursued by a totalitarian state is just subject to an earlier, as I noted, uh, sort of ideology that it was uh, was was also uh, instituted just through the exercise of power.
2: Yeah, and the people who are dissenters are labeled reactionaries. Right. Uh, Or possibly counter-revolutionaries. And here's the thing. In in all cases, as I said, totalitarian systems tend to be utopian. And the converse is also true. All utopias are totalitarian. Because the one thing you can't tolerate is dissent. Dissent threatens the coming utopia. So the way the ideologies develop, they develop, I would argue, even self-consciously in this way, that any opposition to it is not being on the right side of history. It is working to actually produce positive harm to society by preventing us from reaching this ideal state that we're, we're aiming toward. Right. Which makes you a class enemy, which makes you a traitor, which makes you any number of things which get you killed. Yeah. Yeah. And that's usually the solution.
0: <laughs> Some kind of death, maybe uh, it's sort of social death uh, in the most benign, uh, you know, sort of expressions. You're uh, no longer able to access uh, access, you know, social media platforms. You're kind of socially mm-hmm. dead. your meat, your your livelihood is, is removed from you. You're fired. uh, (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. Uh, So, uh, but in the more, more sort of forthright and honest expressions, you're just, you're just killed. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I think an important point, because I think sometimes people get confused when, when we use the term ideology, because a lot of times they think ideas, concepts. And so, um, you could think of you know any worldview, and even the whole whole terminology of worldview, uh, Welt Shaung, some some what grows out of ideology and idealism, um, and so without going through that whole history, um, what has to be in place in these kind of movements when we talk about idealism is the way in which a conceptual vision um, is not grounded in reality and universals um but is it comes from somewhere else um either like uh you both mentioned these kind of ideals that get projected on the reality but a lot of these movements were were um, post-darwinian and so their their kind of realism was what they thought of is basically everything's matter and that concepts are nothing more than the the outworking of material conditions. so this was how they sort of held their ideals as if they were sort of realists grounded in reality Um, but they're not grounded in reality in the sense that they reflect the real world they're grounded in the fact that they're the byproduct the accidental byproduct of the material irrational world with no real natures and so what you have in, in a lot of these visions is that there are forms of social consciousness that are not evolved enough and so they they reflect a lot of things that privilege one group over the other um and so that these you know ideologues um view a sort sort of equilibrium as the end result of this process they want to help it along and so they want to play with ideas and set forth an ideal um, that they think is de- is connected to the material accidental conditions moving towards this equilibrium that they call justice. So it, it's a it's a tricky kind of thing, but it, it's it is for most of these visions, it isn't grounded in the real as rational, like say Aquinas, where where being and the law of non contradiction uh, are, are two sides of the same coin. Here, the law of non contradiction would just be the byproduct of of natural forces and consciousness, not, not oriented towards anything rational.
0: Yeah, I think that sometimes uh, well-meaning people uh, confuse the terms philosophy and ideology, uh, mm-hmm. assuming that they're referring to the same thing, that they're, syno- that they're synonyms. Um, it, while it is true that every ideology has a philosophical basis, there are philosophies that are not ideological in character. And that's yeah. hard for some people to sort of uh, get a hold of. But ideology depends upon, uh, first and foremost, this idea that we live in a sort of me- mechanistic universe, that this is just matter in motion, and that um, our knowledge uh, is kind of, uh, you know, sort of, contained in our skulls (laughs) and uh it's uh you know the models that we make in our heads about sort of the world outside our heads that you know is what constitutes knowledge whereas uh, in the older understanding uh knowledge is what orders the world and it can be discerned in the order of things and uh you're even the capacity to know is in some sense tied into this larger reality. Um, what's happened in the modern era is this radical subjective inward turn. Uh, you know, we go from, uh, God saying, uh, you know, when he's asked, you know, uh, who are you? Uh, I am that I am to Descartes, uh, I think, therefore, I am. So we're grounding knowledge now yeah. in this in sort of the sort of the psychology of the knower, it rather kind of, yeah, than in the world outside the and, head.
2: Yeah, I have to put my obligatory comment about Descartes. That was the effect of Descartes, but that was not the intention. Oh, sure. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he, Descartes he, was actually trying to answer the problem of radical skepticism, and he was asking the question, "Okay." what is there that I can't doubt? The, the piranical skeptics out there were, were basically saying you can't get any kind of certainty because you can doubt pretty much everything. And, and there's, so without certainty, it changes your whole way of looking at knowledge. So Descartes was asking himself the question, what is it that I can't doubt? And the answer was, I can't doubt that I can doubt. And that's but, where the whole thing begins. But where it goes from there is a different matter. Yeah, there's a thing in the
0: history of the world called the law of unintended consequences. <laughs> <laughs> the only yeah.
2: universal law in
0: history.
1: Yeah. yeah, and maybe maybe another way of putting it, I mean, I, you don't want to, you know, keep pounding on philosophers, but I do think someone like Kant is worth bringing up because what you had prior to that, and, and of course Kant was influenced by Hume and and Descartes, but, uh, and tried to solve a puzzle they both, you know, promote, put, put together. Um, but one of the things that that really Kant brings to a concentration, and it's good to just think in terms of theology. Classically, theology argued uh, from, you know, I mean, there were, there were debates between kind of the, the, the kind of, um, the Platonic line and the Aristotelian line, and different ways of combining them. But classically, um, a lot of theology argued that that there we can speak metaphysically about God, both philosophically and then you know uh, perfected in theology. Um, but what what happened with with Kant is basically said there is no way through experience um, grounded in reality um, we can really take our concepts and apply them to God because these concepts are not grounded out there in reality to which we conform. They are they are here. The categories are in our 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 you know the structures of our consciousness. These are transcendental um, but they are not transcendent. Um, and so what what do we do? Well he said well we can't we can't argue from experience to God but what we can do is say we can make sense of something else in the world. We can make sense of our moral experience if we presuppose the concept God. You see what's going on here? God becomes an idea that grounds the intelligibility of my moral life. This is sometimes my criticism of certain kinds of presupposition, is that God becomes a functional idea that gives intelligibility to the worldview rather than than God being the primal reality and everything else being dependent on God. So, I mean, I think that's where you start to see theology start to become an ideology in a very clear-cut case. God becomes a function of a conceptual ground for the intelligibility of, of my moral experience rather than actually the content from which a, re- a realist uh, uh,
0: interpretation of creation and life and reality takes place. So we have, with regard to this matter, human nature, uh, kind of a ontological and an epistemological set of consequences that follow when we lose uh, a way of uh, speaking about human beings as Uh, as as, uh, having natures and being stable in some sense. That's not enough, though, for a totalitarian regime to emerge, but it is one of the preconditions in in order for it to come about. Uh, Another important uh, precondition is uh, the breakdown of other institutions in society. Uh, Something sometimes referred to as atomization. So When you have social classes, for example, there's an entire chapter in in Hannah Arendt's uh, book on the classless society and how the classless society is actually a precondition for the emergence of a totalitarian regime.
2: Um, I've just got a comment. As I look at a lot of American society today, it seems to me to be pretty classless. So <laughs>
0: depends what we mean by class.
1: <laughs> sure, both, both, probably, uh, both
0: probably are part of it. <laughs> right. But what, what Arendt was saying uh, is that when you have a society that's divided into classes, you have interests. Each, each class has an interest and it pursues its interest, but it can't do so without taking other classes into con- consideration. Um, the There is a kind of total picture in which each of the classes depends upon the others, uh, but the classes, uh, you know, do have their interests. You know, things can get out of balance. Uh, sometimes some classes... Uh, Pursue their interest at the ex, at, at too great an expense uh, for the others to to flourish, but nevertheless you have this sort of situation in which you've got internal divisions. Now you you can think about this in another way. You know you can think about say you know Kuyperian sphere sovereignty and you're, in which you have different spheres of authority, institutional authority in a society. One of those, of course, being the household. But you have others as well. You know, you've got government agencies. You've got, uh, you know, uh, you know trade associations. Uh, so you've got different, you know, unions, different economic, uh, you know, different organizations that are that are organized to pursue some economic goal, uh, uh, or to further some uh, some trade interest. Uh, so you have all of these different communities, uh, and structures within, uh, society. And it's within those structures that people find themselves. This is the the paradox. Um, you know, it's in a household, uh, in which you're, you're told in a variety of ways that you're not the center of the universe, (laughs) you know, that there are other people in the household that you need to be, you know, connected to in a positive way Uh, There are authorities in the household that you need to submit to and so forth. It's in households that you learn that I'm a son or a daughter or a father or a mother or a sister or a brother or an aunt or an uncle. And each of these names or titles uh, has some responsibilities that, you know, uh, go with those titles and some privileges that go with those titles. Anyway, and the same is true with every other institution in the society. Now, within the modern era, with the rise of the industrial age and, you know, the development of the industrial revolution, many of these uh, historic uh, sort of ways of sort of understanding yourself begin to break down, and people become more fluid. They move from one thing to another. They move to new Communities where they don't know anyone. They they uh, go to work for large bureau- bureaucratic institutions where they're just uh, a cog in a large machine or a number on a sheet. Um, and it's in that, in, it, it, within that sort of uh, d- sort of uh, larger society that you develop what is known as the mass or the masses. And it's when you have masses that the totalitarian uh, is kind of. You know, uh, coming into his own because it's in that in- environment that the totalitarian uh, state uh, can propose a new structure mm-hmm. that puts uh, people to work and gives them some larger uh, sense of meaning, uh, a place to know who they are and who other people are, and more or less creates ex nihilo. Uh, from this sort of just chaotic soup uh, this mm. primordial sea a new mm-hmm. civilization or a new social structure so anyway that's that's what happens you have you have all of these uh, individuals who are looking for direction uh, need they have needs psychological and economic needs and it's the totalitarian, movement that provides those, uh, you know, or addresses those needs for those people. Any thoughts on that?
1: Um, I mean, I, I think one of the things is, I mean, another way of talking about it, you know, the gift of form and, and the way in which, you know, um, there are, there are natures and arrangements of natures and hierarchies of relationships that are part of the gift Genesis speaks about them. Um, you look at things like um, the Tower of Babel when when uh, people tried to make that hierarchy and that arrangement their own way. And one of the interesting things there, the judgment on them, is that they were going to make their own name great rather than their name being great by God's calling them to be a family and and the, the multitude of children that grow out of the, this God-centered um, covenant um, for that will bless all the nations. Um, so, what you have with the Industrial Revolution, of course, is the way in which technology is such that's beginning to develop, if you will, in a sense where it can go the direction of Babel. Um, and in many cases, it has. With all of its blessings, it has also brought these dimensions that have impacted the, the core social arrangements that are central to our life. I mean, in one sense, Christianity has this element of conversion, and that can call you sometimes to uproot from your natural bonds and if the the others aren't part of that covenant, but it it has you set the stage to reorient those things, not to to cut yourself off of them. So you become a family grounded in Christ and and a covenant part of this family of God. But what's going on here is that it rips people up now, From their natural bonds, their roots, oftentimes their churches, their denominations, someone will move to, you know, you look at the way in which people left Europe and came to the U.S. and started to take on the popular forms of religion. Um, But then you get to this place where a lot of people are today, where they basically, their, their identities are such that, for example, their political ideas can keep them from their natural bonds of their family to where they won't even eat dinner with them. Um, So you have this kind of uh, cocktail in place of masses that don't have those strong forms of relationship and connectedness. And you see it, of course, with identity as well. Identity, which, I mean, this is why so many people are in therapy because those forms have been played with and altered so much, they become so fluid that they have no reference point. And so they bear the hell of having to try to develop an identity when, when this is, this
0: was formally something given to them with the gifts of creation. Yeah. I think I remember Sartre saying something like, uh, we're condemned to be free. Yes. And he was, he was, he was, uh, getting at this very thing, you know, in the past, uh, there was a great deal for granted that had been granted that, that were, was understood to be, uh, obligatory, but also, a you know, these were gifts. So to be a son or to be to be a father uh, was just in the nature of things. It wasn't something I chose. Yeah. Now, it's still in the nature of things, but we're under the illusion that we choose these things or that, you know, anyone can choose these things regardless of whether or not they're biologically male, you know, <laughs> or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the kind of, is sort of the thing that follows, that naturally follows from this. But so we we have this... Uh... Uh, Chris, go ahead. Uh, if, yeah. if
2: I could throw in one other direction on this. You have to have, in order for a totalitarian movement to have any kind of success, you have to have a widespread discontent in the society. And that can be caused by any number of things. Um, economic um, defeat and war, you know, fill in the blank. There are any number of things that can cause this. But at the same time, you don't get revolutions unless conditions are are improving. In other words, people who are actually at the bottom never do revolts. They're never the ones who revolt. It's the people who are are rising um, through the ranks that are always the ones that call for revolution. They're always the ones that lead revolutions. So revolutions, put it differently, revolutions are always done effectively by elites or by aspiring elites— never yeah. buy the masses per se. Yeah, that's the weird thing about it. The person who's particularly good at,
0: at exploring this very thing is Eric Hoffer uh, in The True Believer. Um, Eric Hoffer was a fascinating character. I think we've talked about him once before, but he was yeah. a longshoreman in, in San Francisco. Uh, spoke with a thick German accent, claimed to have been born in the United States, just so happened to emerge <laughs> <laughs> on the American scene, you know, right after World War II. So <laughs> you're like, something doesn't add up here. But I, anyway, uh, but he had just such uh, remarkable insight into the into sort of these dynamics that we we're just talking about, and he he made that same observation. Um, but I guess uh, you know the thing that. You know you still need uh, when you have you know the uh, you know sort of uh, no longer or I should say you, you no longer have a sense that there is such a thing as a human nature and people are you know malleable and we live in a mechanistic universe and we have people whose you know uh, commitments are no longer strong uh, or connections are no longer strong and are they've been atomized and subject to large social forces that are already shifting and moving them around, there's still, uh, for a totalitarian movement to develop, there has to be something that some people have referred to as mass formation. This is a term that has come back into uh, public awareness related to things that were occurring during uh, the, the pandemic. People were behaving oddly. <laughs> Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this drove uh, some thinkers, including this guy, Matthias Desmet, uh, back to the sources. And he said, I can see what's going on here. This looks like the sort of stuff that's referred to as mass formation. Now, mass formation is basically what we've been talking about. You've got this sort of formless mass filled with anxiety, dread, anxiety. and and and, uh, and and in need of direction, and there are people who come along and say, "I've got the direction for you. <laughs> this is what we're going to to we're, we're going to do is we're going to form this mass into a movement to pursue a particular vision of the good uh, that may be absolutely horrendous. In fact, when, with regard to the Nazis, or maybe appears to be a little more benign in the case of communism, but still in terms of its working out is just inhuman. Um, But this is what we're going to do. We're going to form the masses. And there are certain things that go into the formation of the masses, and you've already brought up one of them, Tom, and that's propaganda. You know, being able to get your message out. Uh, And when it comes to propaganda, if if you no longer have Uh, The traditional sources of authority, meaning tradition or the transcendent source of all authority, God, or even, you know, uh, a tradition or a a philosophy that points you, you know, sort of takes you outside of yourself into some objective realm of of universals, Uh, where do you turn? Well, the science. Mm -hmm. Get this, the science. (laughs) Mm-hmm. You have to turn to the science because if the universe is strictly understood as a, you know, as being a machine, science is the means by which we understand the way the machine works. And there's often a very subtle sort of uh, move that occurs uh, in the name of science from description to prescription. Yeah. This yeah. is where the question begging comes along. So s- suddenly you go from a situation where you have say climate scientists describing global warming or climate change to making proposals to address this as the the sort of the existential threat to the human race.
1: This is where to use old terminology, natural philosophy, which was the old name for science, shifts to natural religion um, yep. this this is this is exactly where that happens and this is this was even you even see this with notions like natural selection, Chesterton caught into this, this is why he was ridiculing. Um, some of the language in Ethics of Elfland, where he was talking about the way basically they make this little shift to 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 uh, teleology that there is some kind of purpose in this material realm, and we can start prescribing things.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you know, like getting back to the climate science, uh, you you ask a climate scientist, particularly someone who believes that the Earth has been around for millions and billions of years, have uh you know has there been climate change in the past? And they say, oh yeah. We've had <laughs> hot periods. We've had really cold periods. It's, it changes all the time. And then you're like, okay, so now we have some climate change. Yes, we have climate change. And you're telling me that this is like a new development uh, or that there's something that, you know, sort of about this particular situation that re- requires some kind of global response? Yes, of course. But then the shift has occurred. The shift has gone from, you know, we've, we've gone from describing to prescribing. This is why we need to go to electric cars. This is why we need renewable sources of energy, et cetera, et cetera. You get my drift?
1: Yeah, and, and the justification is, like you just said, the science. When the science pers- pers- is there to dis- at, a, you know, it, at its honest and to describe in a very limited way in which future science will either confirm or negate. It's then left there to people that are moral philosophers, theologians, and rel- to make sense of that, not for, not for uh, a kind of elite hierarchy to do it. That's something classically to be debated, the way all, all uh, philosophy and ethical uh, you know, dilemmas are. And this is exactly where the, author- the authority side, at least the psychology of the authority, uh, plays into the kind of social consciousness.
2: Yeah. Another aspect of this that I find really fascinating is we've got this cult of experts that has really developed. But when you take a look at the experts, <laughs> look at the results of what they've done, uh, it raises real questions of why we trust experts to begin with.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, quantitative easing—we're going to create. Since the Biden administration came in, 80 percent of the dollars that are in circulation have been created out of nothing. And they are bewildered about why there's inflation. Yeah. You know, right. um, and you know, so, so I, I the solution is to change the language. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's uh, you know, I mean, you can give example after example after example of where the experts have screwed things up royally. Yeah. Why do we trust them yeah. to the degree that we do? Why do we let them dictate
0: policy? Yeah, I think that there are a couple of reasons. One is that we don't really believe that there is an alternative because we no longer believe in human nature or uh, sort of a human telos or a uh, objective sort of realm of goods that we can refer to. All we have are the experts who are authorities in gathering data and analyzing it, and so their solution to every problem is more control. So yeah. the reason why this failed, Glenn, is is not because we had it wrong; it's because we did not control enough yeah. of the sort of the you know the, the the situation on the ground. And if you want to get better results, Glenn, you got to give us more power, more yeah. authority. This is how this yeah. kind of Creeping totalitarianism develops, at least in the technic- technocratic sense that, that I think by is the way, our own has, challenge.
2: Has anybody kept track of the number of times that we've had five years unto, uh, to act or climate, <laughs> climate <laughs> yeah. apocalypse occurs? Right. Uh, I mean, I remember reading something like, by 2020, New York City is going to be underwater unless we act dramatically right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, excuse me, how often do they have to be wrong before you start questioning it?
1: Yeah. Well, we, it must have been the rock and roll in the 70s uh, that heated up the planet from the Ice Age that was supposed <laughs> to happen. Yeah. Um, right. Real quick point. Carl Popper, uh, you know, no, no Christian that, that I, I, I'm aware of, but he, he was very suspicious of these radical moves in scientism. And he was somebody, of course, wanted to drive it towards a very realist interpretation and recognize the, the good of science within its, you know, the, its limits. And one of the things he was talking about, um, it, you know, especially these radical movements like you see with the transgender and the in the surgery stuff, is he was saying that is the that is the worst way to carry science out. Um, first of all, because you cannot control the outcomes when you go at things with that kind of throttle, like you were just saying, you can't. You can't, and you create so much spin-off that your whole claim to want to guide, direct, and have control of things runs beyond you. So it's almost this this idolatrous aim to control makes them become so zealous to, to, to run with things at such full throttle that they end up creating, uh, continuously worse situations. And this is what Glenn's point to where you, you, your expertise just is, isn't expert anymore.
0: Yeah. Which brings it back to this notion of human, you know, this, uh, this place that I began, uh, human nature and, and and it's reality. If, if we have natures, if we, or I should say, if we have a nature, uh, that makes us what we are, um, then we have some basis for independent judgment and we can evaluate the performance and claims of the, of the experts. But if we don't have that, then all we can, uh, you know, be, you know, uh, sort of left or all that we're left with is maybe a different set of experts who maybe prefer our point of view. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you end up with, a, a situation in which there's very little, uh, prospect for accountability when it comes to these, uh, programs endeavors. Um, in fact, if you raise questions, it, uh, in the minds of many people, just as it just demonstrates your uh, moral de- debauchery or de- you know, the fact that you're not morally upright. T- to even call into question these things demonstrates that you're somehow um, debased. Uh, it, it's, it's interesting because it's a very flip side of classical
1: Western philosophy and, re- and, and theology. Um, it actually requires a, the right kind of conversion and the right kind of spiritual, moral, and aesthetic in order to actually properly attune yourself to the reality that is there. And they automatically think through science, they have immediate access to the way things are, which is basically raw material that you can manipulate and they can direct based on their humanistic goals. Where it's actually the reverse side. They don't, even with their scientific techniques, have a proper insight into the nature of things apart from a rigorous kind of, of, of moral and spiritual humility that is required to actually submit, if you will, your mind to the being that is really there and and hear the directions that it points, which, of course, theology fills in in the fullest
0: sense. Now, some of our listeners might be wondering, just how was science employed in, say, the Nazi regime or uh, in the Soviet regimes. Well, there was Soviet science. There was Nazi Hmm. science. Um, They had a set of presuppositions, you could say, that we would reject. But within the framework of those presuppositions, you could make a kind of sense out of what they proposed. Uh, With the Nazis, of course, it was uh, racial superiority that... Uh, they wanted to preserve and promote. And so there was a kind of uh, science, so eugenics, that had uh, the task of demonstrating the superiority of the Aryan race uh, and f- further developing it and purifying it. So you had some of the stuff that we see going on today with regard to genetic um, projects. Uh, you know, in in place in uh, the Nazi, uh, you know, totalitarian state, within uh, the Soviet Union, you know, you had a framework which pre- uh, presented itself as scientific in character, and that's dialectical materialism. So the the premise of dialectic, dialectical materialism is one that you brought out earlier tom and that is that matter seeks a kind of equilibrium and because human economics uh as they are currently uh uh practiced uh in a capitalist society don't have the kind of equilibrium that they ought to have if they if they've reflected the natural order of things there is a kind of inevitable progress that will uh sort of be carried out which will bring about an equality of conditions for everyone in society. So that was the scientific quote scientific premise mm-hmm. that informed communism. Um, so there's there's an appeal to the science uh, in both of those places.
2: Now, the other, the go other ahead, thing Kim. is that, well, I, I suppose it's not really odd. Their presuppositions determined the things that were acceptable within the the framework. So, for example, I remember running into a number of people who had read Soviet history, scientific history, in which they talked about what they called totalitarian agriculturalists, (laughs) as opposed to the free nomadic herding peoples who didn't (laughs) own any property or anything like that. It's the, the evil agrarians were the problem. If you actually look at ancient history, the agricultural societies were constantly being attacked and invaded by the pastoralists. (laughs) They were the ones who were the aggressors constantly. Every major defensive wall fortification system in the ancient world was put up to separate agricultural territories from pastoral territories, (laughs) starting with the Great Wall of China. And yet, by by Soviet, because of the assumption that private property is evil and is the source of, uh, we're going back to Rousseau, private property Mm -hmm. is evil and is the source of all all problems in society, because of that assumption, they have to go with the agriculturalists as being the bad guys in the story. Hmm. And
0: this, I think, reflects a significant problem with this kind of scientism that we see. Um, it's uh, you can't really challenge it, um, you can't call it into question, because to do so uh, undermines the entire ideological program. Um, you 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 go from being say you know a set of people who are really interested in understanding the truth of things and how to address you know uh, the circumstances you find yourself in well. To people who were just trying to defend the status quo with regard to the, you know, intellectual institutions that people belong to. And anyone who dares to call into question the science is a heretic uh, and has to be uh, punished, uh, exiled, uh, you know, you get the point. but But we see that we saw that with COVID. Mm-hmm. And we're now seeing it, and we have been seeing it with the climate stuff. Anybody yeah. who, who says you know there may be something that we are overlooking here, or there's this isn't really taking this into account, that person is now persona non grata.
1: Yeah. Well, that that's how they you know that's how they their their aim. They don't it, they they aren't you know liberal in the in the positive sense of the word that they're interested in. And exchanging um, ideas to get a hold of truth, you know, to making argument. Um, what what they're interested in is is having their vision center and and absolute. And then anything that is a challenge to it is a threat because it isn't grounded in reality. It's something that needs it needs to be held in power. And so, yeah, it has to control any kind of opposition. One of the best ways to do it is turn any questioner into having an evil motive, right? So the person who may think that dealing with things in a way that just promotes another kind of racism or other kinds is therefore a white supremacist trying to protect their own privileges and this, that, and the other, or, um, you know, a, a patriarchal, you know, you know person who wants to just dominate everyone else the these pejoratives um, start to take on psychological uh effect to shut and silence cancel and eliminate any and you see there's a whole list they don't even argue for it they're a misogynist homophobic. you know and, and so if they can just make that list that can just shut someone out of course it, it has a lot to do with people not really getting to the point of all or nothing but but um but that's one of the that's one of the mechanisms uh you know i think with technology you're seeing it even louder and then the connection of banks especially and who knows with the irs you know to basically go after any any kind of group or person who opposes certain you know directions and ideas
0: yeah i think this is a good place to 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 sort of draw this to a conclusion because i think that often when we think about totalitarian states we you know have people like Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or Mao come to mind. And we say, well, who's that person in our situation? Uh, We don't have anyone like that. Maybe some people would like to insert Trump, although, you know, maybe he's got some megalomaniac, you know, sort of, sort of characteristics. But uh, he certainly doesn't have the Uh, control of the elite institutions that you would need to control in order to actually pull this thing off in the way that Stalin and Hitler did um, and Mao. But uh, I think that something uh, even more, I guess, insidious and I think frightening is uh, developing in our society, and that is a kind of mass mind that has the wherewithal to uh, almost be leaderless uh, in a certain sense, where the, 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 the ideology becomes just so pervasive and so intrinsically kind of wrapped up in the institutions of authority in our society that no one really needs to coordinate anything. Everything is just sort of done on the fly in a kind of technocratic nightmare. Yeah,
1: and I think one of the ways that you're seeing it promoted is sort of the new, the the, the secular religious calendar, if you will. Um, so this week is devoted to this group. This week is to Pride. This month is for the, this is a constant cycle. Symbols everywhere that are ingraining within us in the psychology of a people. You know what what old religious uh, calendars used to do for the faithful, right? Create unity. Create unity of consciousness. Create a shared um, religious vision, um, that's just one angle of it. But you you, you have these, you see this stuff, and it, even to the point where, you know, I've seen some kind of otherwise left-wing people in Britain during the whole Pride thing with this, I mean, the, the whole neighborhood, you know, basically... Sim, set up in these uh, rainbow symbols, saying this is just getting creepy, you know. <laughs> um, but you, 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 what is driving this, and and who is driving this, and why do you have this shared institutional mindset flooding through just about everything?
2: One one other thing that is worth noting here: in none of these mass movements that we've talking we've been talking about, in none of them that I'm aware of, did the majority of people actually buy into it the majority of people went along with it.
1: Yeah. They didn't
2: necessarily buy into it. And that's something that I think is important for us to keep in mind now because we're in a situation where I think a lot of people are just keeping their heads down and keeping their mouths shut because they don't want to get canceled, because they don't want to lose their jobs or lose their reputation or lose their friends or whatever. Um, And yet... It is those people being quiet that actually enables yeah. the totalitarian to take over, even if they don't support them. Yeah. Right, or the just
0: the totalitarian system. Uh, maybe, maybe the new, maybe the new Mao is uh, AI. You know, because yeah. <laughs> what what we have that's the sort of the, the feature that's been added is this uh, sort of. Uh, you know, sort of media ecology, this sort of social media uh, environment that makes it possible to ostracize someone almost instantaneously everywhere uh, online. And I think you're right, Glenn. Now, the question is what to do. And I think that the answer is, is, you know, we have to have people who just won't shut up. And this is what dissidents do. Uh, uh, Matthias Desmond, in his book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, really zeroes in on this. And he says, you got to uh, have just a lot of dissidents who just won't shut up in order to keep the worst from happening. And when the worst does happen, they just need to keep talking. And that requires, of course, courage and a willingness to pay the price. And very few people have what it takes to sort of just stand on their own and do these things. You, need, you also need communities yeah. uh, that provide a place for these people to just to, to, to live and find friendship and support. So, you know, our churches need to be like that. Unfortunately, uh, some of the churches fail miserably in this respect. Um, in fact, they kind of baptize the totalitarian system uh, we have examples in Nazi Germany. We have examples yeah. in China and in this, and they, you know, they, former the former Soviet Union. the evangelical church in Nazi Germany. Yeah. <laughs> I think that uh, there are a number of people that I just look at in the big evil world and they say, man, I don't trust you uh, to look after my interests uh, or tell the truth at all. There is nothing that you've done that demonstrates an ability to go against the f- the, the flow uh yeah. when it comes to these matters you just get carried right along with the rest of the folks you even parrot the same talking yeah. points
1: well this is what you get with formless uh christianity um once the incarnational form doesn't have a religious form relationship without religion uh you 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 basically transcendence has been removed from being imminent in form in in the in in and so what do you have a vacuum and it's the same shape as everything else. And so it's as E it's as fluid and easy to manipulate as any, any, you know, anything else, because it's almost purely a psychological relationship to, to God. Therefore it's
0: very manipulatable. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well, let's wrap things up here. Um, I'm going to be uh, working on this book for a while. I'll be returning to themes <laughs> related to this matter in the you know weeks and months ahead. So we don't need to get it all figured out right now. <laughs> well, we thank you for listening to another episode of the Theology Podcast. We're very pleased by the number of people who've become patrons uh, who are giving on a monthly basis to the to the show. Uh, thank you very much, uh, folks who've done that. We've got some assassins out there, people who give at $100 a month. And then, there, of course, there are grumblers and super grumblers, and we're grateful for all the grumbling uh, that goes on (laughs) uh, in our Patreon uh, world. We're also grateful for the folks who listen to us on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network and support us there. We were just going over the numbers today, and uh, definitely uh, half of our listeners are in that world. And uh, we're grateful to the Fight Laugh Feast people for providing a platform for our show. And we're uh, even more grateful for the people who give to us through the Fight Laugh Feast network on a regular basis. So thanks one and all for your support, your prayers for sharing the show with folks. Uh, We're pretty confident that we have an audience of about 10,000 pugsters out there. It just blows our minds. But all the data that we get seems to indicate that's the case. And uh, anyway, with all those things said, bye-bye. Bye-bye.